I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Um, the English Civil War and the Commonwealth and Protectorate, uh, which it brought in its wake, have for a long time fascinated political radicals and equally provoked their opponents into counter-narratives. But the recent uh, endeavour of right-wing libertarianism to appropriate the levellers has found no echo, I think, in relation to the ranters, whose star rose and fell between 1649 and 1651. The ranters were, and are, and always will be, right beyond the pale of orthodoxy. Nobody wants them. Uh, they would have enjoyed, I think, the modern debate about whether ranterism ever really existed. Now, Nigel Smith, who holds the patent chair of ancient and modern literature at Princeton, has made the ranters one of his lifelong studies. I say one of his studies because he's also a published authority on Milton and on Marvell. But in 1983, he published the first edition of his collection of ranter writings, subtitled, as you see, Spiritual Liberty and Sexual Freedom in the English Revolution. Pluto are now republishing it in enhanced form, enhanced because two further ranter tracts, which have come to light in the interim, are now included the anonymous justification of the mad crew, and Joseph Salmon's divinity anatomized. To make room for them, Abiezer Copp's supposed recantation has been dropped. Now, this is perhaps a pity, but it may be how Copp would have preferred it. In 1974, the singer-songwriter Leon Russelson wrote a song about Abiezer Copp, and he's here tonight to start the evening by singing it. As the song will remind you, Abiezer Kopp's re recantation may not have been all it seemed. Leon. Have ease a cane, but hungry cries the bricks, 
need the book after that. Uh, what I'm going to do now um, is ask Nigel some questions about Rantorism and its exponents. Um, I'm not going to monopolize the discussion. If you feel uh, an irresistible urge to join in, to make a point or ask a question, please do so. But towards the end, I'm going to turn the discussion over to you so that you'll then have an opportunity to make any points or ask any questions. Uh, and then at the very end, I'm going to ask Leon, if he doesn't mind, to sing one more song, his celebrated tribute to the diggers, The World Turned Upside Down, and with that we'll conclude the proceedings. But first let's turn to Nigel, uh, whose work this is. Nigel, to the uh, uninstructed onlooker, the Commonwealth was host to a bizarre variety of sects, the Muggletonians, Seekers... Fifth Monarchists, Baptists, Quakers, Antinomians, Millenarians. And at many points, Ranter ideas, it's clear, intersect with and replicate in part other ideas that were current in the years of the Commonwealth. Which notions are distinctively Ranter notions? So, so lots of people gave their support during the course of the English Civil War to what we call today... Puritanism, extremely reformed religion, allied with the Parliament in their uh, struggle with Charles I. And um, at the end of the Civil War, as 
as a new state was created with the execution of the king and the creation of a republic, they felt betrayed. Um, and one of the things that, that they felt betrayed about was quite simply the, the fact that they still didn't have freedom. And one of the ways in which they didn't have freedom was that Puritanism still made you feel wretched because you were sinful and you couldn't do anything about it in the way that orthodox Puritanism worked. So the ranters and, and probably Cop foremost amongst them, he saw in orthodox Puritan worship and discipline a system of social control in which the notion of sin uh, was used to make people feel utterly miserable about themselves. Um, and not only miserable, but the, the only way out was to be um, more and more disciplinarian so that you, you ended up hating your neighbour. You had to uh, make as much money as you possibly could, look after yourself, be selfish. Let's call it the, the Protestant spirit and the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism, as Weber called it. And the ranters were against that. They were for total charity. And they saw total charity as the complete abandonment of all kinds of property. So that was their particular solution. It wasn't the only solution. There were, there were others um, around at the time. But what that meant was sharing everything that was worth anything. So COP literally wanted everyone to give their money away to, to whoever needed it at the time or anything else that they had that was of use to anyone else. And it also meant um, expressing um, the glory of being alive and of knowing God within you, because that's where God really was. He was something that was inside you. Um, perhaps it was dangerous even to think about him as a, a personified entity. Um, and the way you celebrated that was to, um, was to embrace the person next to you, kiss them, and perhaps more than that. So there is in ranterism, um, and it's, it's expressed by different ranters to different degrees, in different degrees of intensity, there is a way in which um, being with another person, even in the most intimate of ways, is the ultimate celebration of uh, the relationship between humans and the creator. So there's a kind of sexual mysticism at the heart of the ranters. And thirdly and finally, the argument by which you justify sin as an invention means regarding the difference between good and evil or black and white as completely spurious, that all things are, in the eyes of God, one. So those are the three components. Well, those are distinctive. Yes. Renterism. And nobody, really else, no, nobody else really has that. Yeah. Um, in your very interesting full um, introductory material, I think you recognize the, that at least some of the religious radicals who got into print under the Ranter umbrella must have been truly deluded or demented. By contrast, you characterize Cop uh, and in part Salmon as well as holy fools, a diff which is a different characterization. Um, that's a typology that I, I, see, I think Brunowski used in relation to Blake, uh, suggested that in such individuals it's the cracks in the head that let in the light, and that it's real, real light. Uh, is that an analysis that diminishes or undervalues some of the ranters? Well, I have, I have to say to you, guilty as charged. I mean, this is, this is absolutely correct. So, so yes, there's, there's, a, there's a category of uh, what we would probably regard as somewhat crazy, but um, there, certainly it, 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 it has its place in early modern society. It, it is allowed to speak. And I, I, I certainly think it's true that William Blake, writing at the end of the 18th century and the early 19th century and painting at the same time, was also somebody who was regarded then and now as, as a genius but somewhat mad. Mm. And that's fine. There's something to learn from that. So we should, we, should, we should celebrate it. The uh, French intellectual, Michel Foucault, he, the first book that, of his that was translated into English, Madness and Civilization, and 
made him famous in the English-speaking world, uh, showed at great length that um, in the pre-modern or the pre-industrial world, uh, a, a, a degree of insanity actually was allowed to make sense. Going back a little in time, what were the antecedents of Rantorism? Uh, can you say something in particular in this context about the everlasting gospel? Oh, yes. Okay. The, the concept of the everlasting gospel, which was made much of by the, the communist historian A.L. Morton, um, first of all, it's, it's a text in... Um, Revelation 14.6, which refers to the way in which um, in the last days there will be endless preaching. It, it is that sounds like a pretty good characterization of the end of everything. That's, yes, it's, it's so, so in the middle of the 17th century, it, it was, it was uh, the, the sign that the, the, the apocalypse or, or the, the second coming of Jesus was, was a, upon us, whichever way you looked at it. Um, the fact that there was there was lots of different kinds of public preaching going on was seen as a, a sign of that. The, the idea of the, the everlasting gospel is usually taken to mean the notion that the that orthodox worship through through physically organised churches with political hierarchies of clerics, uh, with dare I say it, archbishops of Canterbury or popes at the top. And so on. That that is a that is something that is um, in the end ungodly and wrong, and that and that in fact we all contain with us within us um, the Holy Spirit or some kind of inner presence of God, and that's actually all we need. And that idea surfaces uh, at certain points in history. Yeah. Well, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? It, it, it's, it originates, I think, in the 12th century. With Fury. It divides history into the age of the Father, the age of the Son, which we're now in, and the age of the Holy Ghost, which is to come. Um, and um, it surfaces in the Peasants' Revolt in what's now Germany in the 1520s. It surfaces again in the writings of ranters and also other radicals in the Civil War. It disappears again and reappears in Blake. And that's about its last appearance. It seems to be an enduring idea that history is on the side of the radicals. Yeah, I don't, I don't think Blake is the last person, mm -hmm. though. I think, he, I think he's a strong tradition. I bet, I bet there are everlasting gospel people in this room. And uh, I, certainly, I certainly knew... Well, for instance, when the first contact I had with this tradition was as an undergraduate in, in Hull, at the University of Hull. And I had a, a tutor who was pre pretty much a ranter. And, and he introduced me to Abby Azekop, and his father had been a famous uh, Methodist prison reformer. And he, um, he knew about this tradition of interpreting the Bible. I guess that's how he came to it, through a tradition of biblical interpretation. Yeah. Of course, you, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you write at one point about the ranters as what you call an identifiable body of interconnected individuals sharing a common heterodox religious language between 1649 and 1651. Now, was this in reality a movement? That is something that other individuals could identify with and participate in, as opposed to simply a scattering of anarchic individuals with some shared ideas, who it's convenient to us to group uh, under a name that was actually given to them by their antagonists. Yes. And they're, so they didn't, you know, who would invent the name Ranter? You, you wouldn't. They, the, where there is I mean, one of the groups of associated individuals, because, yes, they were associated individuals, um, one, of the, one of the groups was known unto itself with the much better name. And if anyone here is looking for a name for their rock band, this is the name, My One Flesh. Um, this, is, this is what you need. Um, much more appropriate names. One of the little groups, there's, in the 1650s, when these groups, the, the, the personnel and the actual uh, idea identities are extremely fluid. And for a while, there's, there's not really very much perceptible difference between ranters and Quakers. One of the early Quaker groups is, is well, the neo-Quaker groups, proto-Quaker groups, is called the Church of the Firstborn. Now, these are, these are much more interesting names than 
these pejorative terms which are used to, to define and to ridicule people and to pre pre present them as um, threats to the social order. We, we use the pejorative terms because they're convenient for us to use. And um, the more you study these groups, if you become a specialist, then you're aware of networks of, of individuals meeting um, for a few weeks in a certain place or in a certain area, like um, somewhere like Clerkenwell, just outside the traditional city of London. Um, and they might meet there for a while, and then, you know, one third of them might go on and associate with another group. And that's the, that's the historical reality of the way in which uh, these people were talking to each other. Now, there was a, the, uh, what you're also talking about is the, the, the dispute in the 1980s about whether the ranters really existed or not. And I'll try and summarize mm. that, because it's quite interesting in the sense that it played international politics. Um, it, it got into the head and excited the Secretary of State for Education in Mrs. Mrs. Thatcher's government. Yes, Kenneth so, Baker. Kenneth Baker, yeah. So, so the, issue, the issue was that um, a, historian, a very respectable historian called J.C. Davis, who I don't think is here tonight. No, okay. Uh, you can speak freely. I can speak freely. <laughs> he, he, he wrote a book called The Ranters and the Historians in which he argued that the views that a left-wing historian like Christopher Hill had presented of the ranters as, a, in his view, a, wide, a widespread movement concerned with or propagating holy sex was a, was a fiction of a scared Puritan press. And uh, if you look at the evidence, they didn't really exist. And, and, and when we look at the people called ranters, they had a very different kind of theology. And Kenneth Baker saw this book and what he, what he saw in it was a, a historian who had apparently destroyed the idea that there was a popular history worth studying. And so he said it was his book of the year on November the 29th, 1986, I think. Which November the 29th is my birthday. I hate that, that he did it on my, that he did it on my birthday. And, and so there was, a, there, was a, there was a reaction against the kind of popular history of the 17th century that Christopher Hill had very successfully promoted in the 1950s and the 60s and the 1970s. Um, and there was a reaction against it, but the tide has turned. My view is that, and you know, I'm, I'm, I teach English literature. I'm, I'm a trained historian, but I'm a literature professor. So um, I suppose I can speak outside the discipline of history as I wish with, with, with no sense of retribution perhaps but I think that Davis was he, he played down certain kinds of evidence to make his case and he went too far yes I think there was some exaggeration as people got interested in this history people studying O and A level history got excited about it and of course to some degree uh, you, can, you can get carried away by this but he went too far and uh, unfortunately, Kenneth Baker uh, did some damage, I think, to the reputation of popular history, which, are, which the current generation of historians, people who are about, people in their 40s now, people about 10 years younger than me, um, are, are putting right. And we now have a, a generation of, of highly skilled historians who I think uh, are able to write in a relatively unbiased way. They have a control of documentary evidence in manuscripts as well as in printed books which is far greater than anyone has ever had before and um, they, they I think constructing a wonderfully rich picture which I've been able to use in my introduction to the revised edition of the Ranters and you can read about it, it more now so it doesn't, doesn't take much imagination to imagine what would happen if a copy of a fiery flying roll or any of the other tracts in your book got into the hands of a Daily Mail journalist to tomorrow morning. I, I guess that's right. I mean, in a, in a sense, a right-wing libertarian might think that as long as you were doing this at home, it was fine. Um, so, you know, I must, I must, so, so I, I did a little, I was on the, um, 
is it called Free Thought? Free Thought? I was on a Radio 3 show um, on the 19th of June. Free Thinking? Yes. I was talking about the book, and then there was a debate between Rod Little, who was, who was speaking for the, for the anarchists, I think, and, um, and I thought did very well. But there was a, there was a, 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 a conservative MP who said he was a, a right-wing libertarian and, and claimed the levelers for his tradition. And, that, you know... You know, so I, I've been in America for 15 years, and things have changed. Um, I was quite, I was, I was, I was really blindsided by that, and it, it, it took me most of the, the half hour that the show took place to, to come back and formulate some kind of response. Yeah. Yes, well, anybody who's read the Putney debates could imagine what would have happened if, if um, your MP had got up there. Um, what evidence do we have, uh, Nigel, for the spread of ranter ideas beyond their immediate carriers? There's well, a very engaging account in your book that Clarkson gave of having been given free bread and beer and cheese in Gravesend by a vittler who had read Clarkson's Pilgrimage of Saints. But is there larger evidence of their yeah. absorption into popular theology? Um, they're, they're, people read the ranters and the, the, uh, the, because they printed their books. They printed some of their books. There are lots of ranters, we just don't know anything about them because they didn't put anything down. There are, there are men and, and indeed women who appear in uh, often hostile accounts but also some sympathetic accounts and it's very hard to know what they thought about all this but it does seem that they were in it. Now the, the people who, people like Abbie Azer Lawrence Clarkson, Joseph Salmon and Jacob Bottomley who did write a book, um, they got themselves read. Now one of the, one of the, the really famous figures who read Ranter books was John Bunyan, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, the, the most popular book in English literature apart from the Bible. He said as a young man, this was rather exciting for about three days. And then, and then of course, his own Baptist Calvinism cut in and he saw them as, as very dangerous indeed. But it's clear that he spent much time in his early ministry before he wrote the books that you know. Who's read The Pilgrim's Progress? Some, some of you have read it. Maybe somebody's read Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Come on, I've taught it to some of you. Um, <laughs> and that doesn't mean they read it, <laughs> Nigel. Yes, of course. I was forgetting the best essay you write <laughs> is about the book you haven't read. Yes. Um, so, so, in fact, Bunyan takes on board, uh, you can show this, um, in, in his autobiography, Grace Abounding, he, he takes on board bits and pieces of Abbey's cop and, and, and internalizes them in a, in a negative way. Um, of course, that means he was in that position yeah. for a while. Now, but it also means they got read. They got read. Now, there's a very brilliant instance. of It's a year ago. Um, it's getting close to submission date. In fact, we're already months past the submission deadline, Pluto Press. Um, and uh, the, the, the Pluto Press had given us. Um, and we needed to... Uh, we needed to, to check the text. We needed to check the Hebrew in Abiezer Kopp's first substantial piece of writing, some sweet sips of some spiritual wine. And uh, I knew I couldn't get back to London. Um, and I, I, looked, um, I started looking in the short title catalogue of printed books, which tells you where, where books are located, some of the books are located. Lo and behold, there was one at the Princeton Theological Seminary, the only copy in the United States. So I thought, that's amazing. It's right here in town. So it's got nothing to do with the university, but none. So I crossed the road and went to the Theological Seminary. And I asked them if they knew how they'd come by it. And they'd, they'd bought the books of a, of a great man of letters of the 19th century. He was, a, he was a, a congregationalist divine called Alexander Grossart. And he, when he wasn't giving sermons, he was a Scot. His ministry was mostly in... Um, oh, yes, yes. Blindsided by that, too. Um, he, was a, he, was a, he was a Scotsman, but he, his ministry was in the Birkenhead area. But he travelled all over the country on trains, preaching, and he retired to Dublin, where, from where his wife came. And he, when he was preaching throughout his career in the mid-19th and the later 19th century, he bought religious books wherever he found them. And somewhere... I suspect in Oxfordshire or Warwickshire, he bought a copy from someone of, of, a, of this extremely rare cop pamphlet. The only other copy we have is in, is in the British Library, I think. Is there one in... Actually, you guys will... Is there one in the Bodleian? 
You don't know. Okay, I think there might be one in, in the Bodleian Library in, in Oxford. Um, so there are three, three extant copies. I think that Grossart's find, um, which eventually ends up in the Princeton Theological Seminary's library, is an instance of a, of a book surviving in somebody's collection for more than 200 years before it finds its way into a proper, a proper library. Mm. So in, I, I suspect it was, it was used from time to time. So the stuff got about. Just backtracking a little bit, why did Rantorism emerge as and when it did? We can date it very precisely. Was it a retreat from leveller politics after the military defeat of the levellers in May 1649? Did it carry those politics forward? Or was it a simple coincidence in time? Uh, just to put some flesh on the bones of that question, I'm probably not the only person here who's read Adrian Tinniswood's recent book, The Rainborough's, which tracks that amazing family of London mariners and New World Puritans into and through the Civil War. Thomas Rainborough, the leveller colonel who electrified the Putney debates uh, with his call for a universal franchise, had a younger brother, William, who was a major in Harrison's Horse and was also there. And William uh, Rainborough, when the levellers were defeated, teamed up with your author, Lawrence Clarkson, and um, became to some extent, part of the Granter movement. Was that an idiosyncratic event or a logical progression? It's not idiosyncratic at all. It's interconnected. The committee that was investigating the Ranters under the terms of the Adultery Act and the Blasphemy Act, which were two legal instruments used to suppress the Ranters, um, they were fairly sure that um, William Rainsborough had bankrolled the publication of Clarkson's a single eye, all light, no darkness, which is the most incendiary. It's a, it's a metaphysical argument for free love. It's amazing. Um, he can't really control the English language as well as Abbey a cop. But when you've, when you've struggled with it, you, you realise what a remarkable document, what a scary document it is. When I was 23 and editing the Ranters for the first time, I just thought it was really exciting. Um, <laughs> Now I'm, now I'm 30 years older. <laughs> it scares the life out of me. <laughs> um, but it's a, it's a very remarkable text. So the, there are two things that are going on, and two things that come together at the end of the 1640s, and they come together in the head of Abiezer Kopp, really. Kopp becomes clear. Kopp and his circle are quite sure that what they would have called visible churches, going to church hierarchy of divines who are, who are paid for either by uh, uh, taxation or by voluntary contributions. That's all totally wrong and it's a, it's a form of um, it's actually a form of slavery. It's a way of controlling people and, and, and making them less human than they really are. Uh, what, what he begins to believe is that it's possible to get back to the state of Adam and Eve before the fall. <laughs> That, that sin is, a, is an invention um, and, and there's this idea that, that the eating of an apple uh, condemned If you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mankind to be disgusted by what it is that we are as human beings throughout history. And it's all rubbish. Get rid of it immediately. Let's just, let's just embrace each other and have fun. And that's worship. So there's that. And they figure that out. And at the same time, the levelers, and some of the ranters are levelers, you know, COP, like most of the other ranters, well, COP have been an army chaplain. Some of the other ranters have been soldiers. I doubt very much that COP was capable of picking up a sword or firing a pistol. But Salmon, Joseph Salmon certainly was as well as having the, the gift of preaching. Um, they had also been committed to the level of cause to extend the franchise and to, and to win um, by, by parliamentary representation much, much greater religious toleration. And this had failed. The, the levelers had mutinied. They tried to raise arms to compel the parliament to do what they wanted, and they'd been suppressed. Um, it's a, it's a, I think you all know probably that in the the calendar of the sacred calendar of the folk left, um, the decimation of the leveller regiments at, at Burford, where they were imprisoned in the church overnight and then every tenth man was executed by being shot against the church wall. And you can still see the musket ball uh, holes in the church wall. It's a very moving thing, and every, every, I think every May Day this is commemorated. You can go along to Burford in Oxfordshire. I've seen, I think I've seen Leon perform there. That's, that's right. So, so the levelers had failed, and what, what Cop said was that the, the aims of the levelers for, for greater freedom in all of the, the ways they were looking for it, the principles were absolutely right, the means was absolutely wrong. Um, what we've missed is that we're not going to do this, God's going to do it, God's going to arrive within us, and the gold and the silver that we use as currency is going to melt in your pockets as it arrives, and if you happen to have it about you and to be hoarding it with you, it's actually going to explode in your pockets and do you harm and punish you. Um, so that's how he imagined the, the, the apocalypse. And, and I think he did have this idea that we would all be, be visited by this holy fire which would transform us and the truly wicked would disappear. And um, nice people, which was nearly you know, most people, would, would, would simply uh, live in a, a state without oppression. Now, you may say that that was profoundly naive, but that's what the ranters thought was about to happen. Well, it's, it's a delusion that people have gone on having over the centuries. Some people here have possibly even entertained it. You, you've taken pains to note the absence of any recorded women's voices among the ranters. And it's not possible, I think, to say, well, that was, that was then. The Quakers gave many women a voice. Is so is there not merely that negative evidence in the ranter canon, but well, in some places evidence of misogyny? Yeah, so this is what I think happened. The, the people who would become known as Quakers realized pretty quickly that the ranter solution wasn't going to work. So they kind of they took the idea of the inner light of God within you and they purged it of joyous sex. Or they, they put that somewhere else. And that meant that the women could speak as prophets as they did without the charge of being whores or loose women. That didn't stop them being treated as whores or loose women by the Orthodox. There's a very famous event in which now, you know, the Quakers were just as extravagant in their early days, in the first ten years, as the Ranters. And going naked as a sign of their purity was one of the things that they did as a, a gesture of protest against the wicked world. And uh, I can't remember which woman it was, but she went south from, she would have moved from Banbury into Oxford from the north, came down the Banbury Road with no clothes on above the waist. And she was identified as a whore, taken into the front quadrangle of St. John's College and ducked in the fountain that used to be there. And she, she actually died a few days later because it was rough treatment. And that, happened to, that kind of thing happened to many 
early Quakers. So even though the Quakers would eventually win and become the most successful of the Civil War-rooted protest groups, radical religious groups, they themselves had to struggle against the way in which orthodox sexual gender stereotypes could be used against them. So just to finish that, there are women who are clearly involved in ranter sexual practice. They are named Mrs. Leek, somebody who really interests me. She appears to be Abby Azercop's Bonnie to his Clyde. It's not fair to say his partner in crime because he didn't see it that way. Uh, Mistress Sini, she's called. And she was actually, she apparently was the, the governess of a poorhouse. Um, that was down on the strand. And I suspect that she bought the ranter message of charity. But what we don't have is the voice of any, any ranter women clearly in a pamphlet. And it doesn't help matters that COP has kind of misogynistic ways of talking about certain facets of his personality that he doesn't like. So in the fiery flying role, he's trying throughout it to, to expel the spirit of selfishness which he recognises within himself and that's been bred within him as a good Puritan boy from Warwick. And he calls that part of his personality the holy scripturian whore within me. And he's trying to get rid of her and she turns up as an externalised personality who's riding on the back of his horse. So she's riding him kind of in a, a way which perhaps is sexually suggestive, riding behind him. Uh, it, and you could see how somebody reading his writing would get the wrong end of the stick very quickly in a culture which didn't have regulated literary criticism. You know, like you all, you all know from O-level, right? So, so you know, the, the whole population knows how to read a ranter pamphlet properly because they've all done English literature O-level or CSE or GCSE now. Um, one of the things that it's my joke. <laughs> one of the things that the ranters and their enemies agree about is that they put a premium on swearing. Do do we know any of the oaths they swore? The reason I ask is that what amounted to swearing has been subject of huge changes. It's not much more than a hundred years ago that the London public was scandalised by Eliza Doolittle saying "not bloody likely" on stage. Presumably it was something rather worse than that, Nigel. Yes. So I think it's very interesting that all of the ranters say, you know, I, I, I'd much rather hear honest people swear than some, well, the cop would say some stinking Presbyterian preacher preach allegedly holy words. In my view, you know, cop and Clarkson will then say, swear words are the voices of angels. Um, but they never, ever say what, what was really said. Now, there's, there's one phrase which turns up which is reasonably reliable, and it turns up in two phrases. So, I am damned, rammed, and sunk into nothing, which, you know, there's no F word there. Um, and ram me, damn me. Now, Rami Dami is, is actually known to originate or to be with drunken young cavalier gentlemen. It's the kind of thing they would say. Yeah. Uh, it's a kind of drinking mantra. And I suspect it was quite simply adopted by, yeah. by ranters and used in that sense. So you get it. Here are two, here are two instances. Um, I mean, Cop, when he's describing his conversion experience, talks about being... Played, consumed, damned, rammed, and sunk into nothing, into the bowels of the still eternity, to, to invoke at this time the word damned or damnation. That's sort of blasphemous to say publicly. And there are certainly um, blasphemous uses of, of godly language. So, I breathe the spirit of God into thee was allegedly used um, uh, during Ranter's sex. It sounds as if the real fuss was about their misusing the name of God. I think that was a, that was a big component of it. Yeah. I, think, I think the problem is that we swear differently now. And, and 
I suspect that, that the oaths that we would recognize and, and, and not the ones they would use. I should have looked before we came here tonight at Robert Graves's book, Lars Porsena, or The Future of Swearing. Uh, he's basically, Lars Porsena, because of Macaulay's poem, and Lars Porsena includes him by the nine gods he swore, but nobody knows how he swore. Um, one um, other aspect, Nigel, if we may, um, you suggest, along with Grail Marcus, that there's an analogue uh, between ranterism and punk, or at least in the Mekons punk lyrics. I wonder if that's perhaps a derivative or a rather superficial likeness. Uh, it's occurred to me, and it may have occurred to Leon too, that there may be a truer link with a songwriter like Sidney Carter, who was a Quaker, who, in The Lord of the Dance, which most people now know, which was incidentally set to a shaker tune, the gift to be simple, uh, presented Christ as the leader of an everlasting dance. Uh, and in another song about John Ball, imagine John Ball, the preacher of the Peasants' Revolt, crowing like a cock and caroling like a lark to exhort people to love one another as equals. Now, that all sounds quite ranterish to me, rather more so than punk. Yes. Okay. So I have to, uh, I have to say once again, guilty as charged, judge. Um, in the, in, in I do, the, do wish you wouldn't keep throwing my past in my face. Sorry, sorry. I'll, 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 um, I'll. That's the last time I do that. Um, so I, I missed, um, I missed something in the introduction there, and I missed it because, um, probably because I'm, I'm just a little bit too young to have cottoned on to Sidney Carter. I was taught the Lord of the Dance as a child mm. to sing at school, and. Um, was, was quite surprised to, to read up about Sidney Carter. And, and I think I probably did know about some of his songs. Mm. And I just neglected to figure that into the history. It's obviously part of this. And Sidney Carter uh, was a near contemporary of Christopher Hills. Mm. So, and they were all at Balliol College in Oxford. So they would have been dis probably discovering this material together. Maybe, yeah. So... That's one part of the answer, but I don't think it's I don't think it's fair to say that the, the Mekons uh, are not taking Abiezer Cop and the Ranters seriously. No, um, no they, they do very much so. Yeah, they, they, they know his stuff. They they've clearly read it and they've read Christopher Hill, and they've made a lot of lyrics out of it. There's one the the one of the um, creative forces in the in the Mekons is John Langford, and he is a painter as well as a musician, and I think there's a, there's a sort of Blake yeah. connection yeah. there. I thought he might write a preface, but he didn't reply to my email. Um. One last question. Um, the best of the prose of the Civil War, I'm thinking of the leveller writer John Waugh, who I once edited, uh, has amazing fluidity and vividness. One makes you think of the best of the King James Bible. Uh, this is the almost the last gasp of that era of prose, the dissociation of sensibility that Eliot noted kicks in at the Restoration. Does any of the ranter prose, I mean Bottomley's for instance, uh, in your judgment come up to that kind of standard? Well, I got interested in it um, because I thought it was amazing writing and that it, that it, had, a, it had a tiny, tiny place in, in all, you know, conventional literary histories. There's an old uh, history of English literature, which which sees Abiezer Cop as a kind of remote ancestor of William Wordsworth, and I can't remember how the argument was made. Um, Wordsworth's not very sexy, though he's a good poet. But I do think, um, and the reason why I did the anthology thirty years ago, and the reason why I was delighted to be offered the opportunity to represent the material by Pluto Press, is because, first and foremost, it is remarkable writing. Cop is a genius of dialogue and, and of the theatrical. It is. He keeps assuming these different identities in order to communicate the idea of universal charity. He basically, one of the things he assumes is that because God is inside him, when he is speaking, it's actually God who's speaking. So he's inherently schizophrenic. And the only way that he can, that he can be both God and Abiezer Cop the preacher at once is to use parentheses quite carefully. So he's, you've got the voice of God 
going along, and then there's a princess saying, and this is my little Abiezo. And, and I thought this was, this was very interesting as well as charming. Um, at, at one point, he, he adopts the voice of a highwayman. And he says, if you, don't give, if you don't give your money away, deliver, Sirah, or I'll blow your head off. And you suddenly become aware that he is processing the full array of 17th century characters, if you went down the road on a journey, would be like. And the, the journey he's actually taking is a fundamental, you know, it's a very important journey for him from, from humble origins in, as a tailor's son in, in Warwick to the great university in Oxford, which was the beginning of his making. So that's Cop, an inherently dialogical and theatrical writer, um, as well as uh, somebody who does something truly original with the idea of the holy fool. In other words, the, the, the fool, like the fool in King Lear, sees things as they really are because he sees the world turned upside down. And he mocks that the real folly is the way things are. And he, he can identify that because he is mad. So that's Cop. And Cop was well educated. Um, Clarkson, complete autodidact. He, his very first tract, which is written five or six years before he's a ranter, would fail a literacy test. Uh, and certainly anyone exerted today. Um, he is learning to write as he goes along, rather like the young John Bunyan. Um, I find that interesting because the will to express himself is so powerful. And he gets, you know, by, by 1660 when he writes his autobiography, which is extracted, the, the, the Ranta section is uh, exerted in the, in the anthology, um, he's, he's pretty good. He's, he's, he's powerful, he could control reasoning, and he's very interested in the category of reason. But because he's not formally educated, he has no respect for the way in which... Um, for instance, Aristotelian logic, as was widely taught in the universities, operated and was disseminated down in the, in the grammar schools. So he, he appears to be um, arguing, you know, as far as anyone who'd been even moderately well-educated at the time could see, he appears to be arguing preposterous things. This seems to me to be compelling, and it's very much, it's a vital part of our history. And then you get people like... Um, Jacob Bottomley, who was, who was a very, very minor officer. He's a, like a lance corporal. Um, and he has this gift of beautiful prose. And he thinks that orthodox religion is useless. I mean, I, his father was a, a, a real old-school um, Puritan who'd been running a house church in Leicester uh, decades before the Civil War um, and, and got himself, uh, got his trade ostracized. He was cut off for doing that. And, and there you are aware of a long tradition of um, popular Protestantism, where um, uh, in, indeed um, hell is no, no longer regarded as a place, it's a state of mind, so is heaven. Um, let us be together to understand what this is. And, and bottomly generates, in, in the sweetest of ways, a kind of native pantheism. He realises that Really, if God is in us, he must be in every other created object. So everything is kind of the flesh of God. Very interesting notion. Um, and he just writes about it in this humble way. Unfortunately, he was in the army and subject to their justice. So, you know, Abiezer Cop, by the time the rant has happened, wasn't in the army. So he's just told to behave himself. And he says, sure, I'll do that. You know, and, and doesn't. And, and gets away with it. Joseph Bottomley had a hole bored through his tongue with a hot iron. So, so what I'm saying is that um, both Joseph Salmon and Jacob Bottomley are, are, in my view, valuable um, native mystics. That's what they are. They're mystical writers. You should compare them with Julian of Norwich and Marjorie Kemp. That's the line in which, in which they belong. People have tried to show how that works. So are, the, so are the early Quaker writers, but the, the Quakers are, are so governed by their own rules that they, and their own need to distinguish themselves from the ranters and other people that they, had to, that they wanted to see themselves different from, that they generate a, a very distinctive style of writing and it's another thing. Uh, they all come through different kinds of, different versions of Puritanism. And, and Clarkson passed through everything from... You know, he was in the Church of England, then he tries out Presbyterianism, 
that doesn't work. Then he becomes um, a Baptist. He doesn't like that. Um, then he he knows about the levelers, becomes a ranter, uh, briefly a Quaker, and ultimately a, a Muggletonian. And then eventually he rejects even, even that. So that will be a fairly standard journey. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge um, the transformative effect of the New Model Army as a fighting, thinking machine. Um, and I think that the, the fact that people, people either signed up or were conscripted and um, got divorced from their roots and their communities. And in that hotbed, um, all sorts of things happened. I also think that London was, was, with lots of people, you know, many more people passing through it than would otherwise have been the case during the war years, London is, an, is a really interesting environment. So there are civilian levelers who are basically London levelers, and, and there are army levelers. And then the other thing that, that, that I think the new scholarship um, has added, which, which wasn't so important to Christopher Hill or, or indeed A.L. Morton, the, the ranters, certainly the ones that wrote, they had some degree of education, and they used it. And, and that's a testimony to their industriousness, and we should laud them for that. I think the old view was that they were, they were folk geniuses, and that, that it all came to them from with whatever was in oral culture. That's not true. It's an interaction between whatever oral culture was and the other stuff that was around them. And they, it, was as, it was as plain as day that they had to use the printing press. And you need means to use the printing press, but you will find a way to do it. I like to think of it, uh, a modern analogy would be that you know, many people can use the, the internet, but ultimately the internet is owned and run and it costs money to do it. I think you, you find, don't you, that the word Puritan is used by historians in two quite different senses. There's the generic uh, notion of the entire opposition to, to monarchism and the autocracy of the Church of England. And is the sense in which historians like Christopher Hill used it. So the, the whole civil war was a, a Puritan assault on the monarchy. And then there's the narrow sense in which we were certainly, I've certainly taught it at school, the, 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 the misery guts who I was mendaciously taught, as many of you would have been, abolished Christmas, which is quite untrue, um, who, and who Bishop Curl at the time rather cleverly described as the kind of man who loves God with all his soul and hates his neighbour with all his heart. Uh, and, um, and that is the kind of sectarian Puritanism which I think Cop and his kind were reacting against. What was the relationship between the renters and the diggers, if any, there was some story I think I read that one of Wynne Stanley's um, co cooperators, William Everard, was subsequently became a ranter. Um, but could you say something more yes, about that? They yes, seem, that's, they, that's seem good. To, they seem to share something about being a reaction to the failure of the levellers. Both of them, I think. Indeed, that's absolutely right. So, for those who don't know, the diggers are another. Um, end of the Civil War, radical religious and political group. And their solution, as seen through their visionary, in the eyes of some people, many people, uh, his name is Gerard Wynne Stanley, and he's the best writer of this kind in the period anyway. Um, their solution was that people should abandon private property and, and, and plough up the land in, in common and live in communes and, and li live on the produce of, of those communes. And very quickly, the oppressive society will disappear. That was the idea. And there were um, several digger, digger communes. The most famous one um, is at um, St. George's Hill, where some of you may have been um, in Surrey. The actual plot of land that they're supposed to have worked on is now owned by the Surrey Water Board. So, so the, the answer to your question is, now that we know what the diggers are, the answer to your question is that the... The ranters and the diggers knew each other. I suspect that some of the diggers uh, might have had ranterish tendencies. And it's clear that some ranters got inside the digger commune and tried to take it over. And Wynne Stanley writes an affrighted pamphlet against the ranters. Now, if, if there's any known ranter who, it's, who it was that we can identify, it was probably Clarkson, but we can't be sure. Um, and in, in um, Kevin, it's Kevin Brownlow's film, about the diggers, um, made in 1975. The, the, the ranter 
attempt at subverting the Digger commune is acted out. And so the Ranters are, are a very romantic-looking couple who look like they've just returned from Glastonbury. <laughs> and um, uh, they dive out of their tents with no clothes on at one point and start running around the commune and upsetting everyone. And doing more or less what Winstanley says they did in, in his anti-Ranter pamphlet. It's comforting so, to know that entryism is nothing new. <laughs> um, I was interested in the after-history of the Ranters. Um, the historian Marcus Redeker wrote about the kind of hidden history of political radicals after the Restoration came um, and located them in the West Indies and New York and all the rest of it. I wonder if, there's, uh, if one can do the same thing for the Ranters and their ideas in the um, 18th century and afterwards. Right. I, I don't know the 18th century history well enough to, to know if it's possible to pick up Ranterish practices, but I wouldn't be surprised. The, f the flux of um, people with opinions like this to and fro across the Atlantic to New England um, is certainly is, is, is something that happened. Um, so there are, there are two things that I think are, are worth saying. All of the people whose pamphlets I've edited uh, become apparently much more publicly well-behaved people after uh, 1651. Um, and they are, they are visible to some extent. Cop carries on being a, a, a kind of um, apocalyptic, uh, apocalypse-believing figure. And I reproduce a pamphlet called Divine Fireworks, where he imagines that... Um, uh, what, he, what he basically says is that... Um, under the, even under the protectorate of Oliver Cromwell, there's been too much makeup, and there are these women walking around with black spots all over their faces, and they're going to get punished. That you know, they're just going to incinerate when 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 uh, the spirit comes. He writes about that and, and talks about that. You know, said and instead of instead of instead of um, instead of makeup, there will be burning flesh and the smell of it, the stench of burning flesh. It's, re it's really not very pleasant. And, and he seems to be projecting uh, the need for a return of the, the kind of Adam, Adam and Eve kind of world that uh, ranter sexuality seems to involve. Um, I suspect he, he carried on believing what he believed quietly and he uh, died around 1672. And there is one, there is one um, uh, I mean, you, you raise Marcus Redeker's work, um, and he often is criticised for trying to um, present uh, a history of um, surviving radical resistance to phenomena, you know, widespread phenomena like slavery, which, you know, most, most white people involved in the transatlantic trade, one way or another, are involved in. Um, and I, I would speak in his defence, and there's there's some there's some very interesting new work. So it doesn't involve anyone who we know as a as a ranter. At, at the very early in the very early days of um, slavery in the Caribbean, uh, slavery in order to have the labour to work the sugar plantations, all sorts of people from the Great Britain were. Uh, it was called spirited away. They were, they were taken off. They may have been prisoners of war. A lot of prisoners of war in Civil War Ireland ended up um, in Barbados, working alongside Africans in slave plantations. So at this early stage, before um, the, ins the, the widespread enslavement of uh, and the, the African slave trade had got going, slaves were being produced out of Great Britain, and there was, a, there was apparently a hostel in 1650s London, which was a staging post. It was on the river, and it was it was and people got persuaded. They were persuaded to sign on as indentured servants to go to Barbados. And of course, when they got there, they were since they were beyond the common law, they were just treated as slaves. And testimony of this came back, and it, it arrived. Uh, and and Colonel Harrison, who was in with the Rainsbys, the Fifth Monarchist leader. Um, got to know about this, and he tried to lead an, an armed insurrection against this particular slave station in London. So I think that's a very interesting example of, 
um, radical religious and political principles being used to, um, uh, to object to one early part of uh, the modern slave trade. I think it's very valuable that the discussions come round to the, the whole spread, the constellation and diaspora of ideas that um, circles around the ranters um, and the diggers in particular. Um, Leon's going to round off the uh, event with his song about the diggers. The world turned upside down. Yes. Well, in 